You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 158, and this is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this morning by David Grubbs. He is a professor of English at Central Christian College in Kansas. David, how are you doing? Pretty well. The sun, the sun came from out behind the clouds, and I'm hoping it warms up because it's pretty chilly here today. Very good, very good. I'm actually hoping the sun dries things up here because I'm supposed to mow the grass because my kids are on spring break next week. But are your kids not old enough to mow the grass themselves? Uh, they are not big enough to push my monster push mower. And Both the voice you hear uh, questioning the macho of my oldest son is uh, Michael Farmer. He is a an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing? pretty good nathan are you having a good friday i get that i get that <laughs> our listeners won't but <laughs> well i mean i'm we sure they have calendars <laughs> <laughs> hey listeners this is of course as you know the christian humanist radio network which means we are one of several shows i just want to point up that we do have a new christian feminist podcast that is on the internet waiting for you to download we should have another episode of book of nature coming soon as well and uh, oh, and also, you know, Christian Humanist Profiles, excellent interviews. Listen to those. Uh, one but with uh, got... N.T. Wright went up yesterday. Yes, it did. Our biggest yes, get did. ever? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, him, Brueggemann, Milbank, Hauerwas, they're all pretty big. Get, get, in gets... the, get in the American sense of that word, not in the British sense. I just want to make that clear since Wright yes, is from Yes, Britain, thank you, you thank know. you. He was a bishop, so, you know... Uh, true enough, in, term, true enough. in terms of ecclesiastical rank, <laughs> I, I just want—I just want to point out to our listeners that um, Nathan Gilmore's hubris. If, if you were interested in how far it goes, he requested <laughs> an interview with former uh, Pope Benedict. I did. I did. <laughs> I said, you know, if I ask. They'll probably say no, but at least I can say I asked. I so. think Kristen said they actually laughed. Yes, they did. On an email, no less. <laughs> yes, but N.T. Wright said yes. That's true. This which, is true. This it is true that you never know till you ask. Which means you have no world, more, no more worlds to conquer. You must feel like Alexander in India. <laughs> I don't know about all that. Sorry, but, I've been watching the new season of Community, and now all I can think of is Jesus wept for there no word, a word, no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> Anyway, I think they may have gotten the quote wrong. Anyway, listeners, I am trying to get to the point here. There is a new show joining the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and you'll be able to listen to it in just a couple days. Uh, it's called the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. Uh, you might recognize that title from the blog of Professor Chris Gertz from Bethel University. He's going to be interviewing people about 
faith, learning, the university life, and pietism. It ought to be a very, very good show. Chris is an excellent interviewer and an excellent uh, podcast producer, so we're glad to have him on the network. And it's kind of uh, crazy for us because we started doing this show in part because of CWC, the radio show, and, oh, yeah. and now yeah. we've absorbed Gertz. Yes. <laughs> I don't know about absorbed. Oh, we're, we're the Borg is what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> Heresy is futile. All right. So, <laughs> so listeners, there are now five shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We hope you listen to all five because we think all of them are most wonderful. Uh, whether or not the sixth will come along, well, you can go find Danny Anderson and see uh, whether or not the... Uh, <laughs> Sectarian Review will remain in the realm of uh, dreams of things to come, you know, the substance of things unseen, so on and so forth. Uh, that's not <laughs> my problem anymore. That's Danny. Anyway, guys. Now uh, that we've reached five shows, are we just going to stop? Or are we just going to keep growing until eventually we're putting out 12 shows a day? And everybody who's ever been on the Internet has a podcast on our network. Yeah. <laughs> well. And in, in, until iTunes U is just called Christian Humanist U, dude. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Let, let's back away from that dream. I don't know it that way. Madness lies. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, at any rate, listeners, our show this week. Uh, it's a good thing that it's not entirely serious. Uh, a movie came to the screens forty years ago uh, wow. that has been a staple for uh, Christian college graduates like the three of us. Uh, and it has been a, a great deal of fun uh, even beyond that. That movie is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And so, Michael, this is the Monty Python that most people in my circles at least know and the most people in my circles at least can recite at will. But it's not by any means their only work. So when in the career of the Monty Python group does Holy Grail happen? And what in the world is a Monty Python happens about in the middle of their career. I'll go ahead and answer that. Apparently, Monty Python is just a a couple of words they thought sounded funny together. I believe Eric Idle has given a couple of explanations for what it means, but they contradict each other, and I think we should probably just go ahead and say that it's just nonsense. Very good. Uh, like so much of what they do. But uh, <laughs> Holy Grail comes pretty close to the middle of their career. They, they they get a TV show on the BBC, rather improbably, in 1969 called Monty Python's Flying Circus. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's really a hallmark of absurdist sketch comedy. Um, as I'll probably discuss in a few minutes, There's it, it's, it's hard to imagine modern sketch comedy without Monty Python's Flying Circus. Mm -hmm. They do a couple of seasons of that, and they start to feel like it's getting stale. And, and in particular, John Cleese starts to feel like it's getting uh, stale, and he quits the group. Uh, and then they come up with this idea for a movie, uh, a movie about the King Arthur legend, and Cleese comes back for it because he decides that's something new that they can do. And so they, they start in 69. This movie is 75, but it's after like two or three seasons of their show, so clearly their seasons are not one per year the way American television is. And they put out, um, I think, just one more movie, right? They put out uh, Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Oh, no, two more. Life, Life of Brian, Brian yeah. which, uh -huh. which is actually uh, my favorite of them. Uh, although I imagine we won't be discussing that one uh, on an episode anytime soon. I mean, after my college starts granting tenure and I get it. <laughs> uh, 
There's also uh, another movie called And Now for Something Completely Different, which actually comes out before Holy Grail, but it's a uh, it's just a compendium of sketches from Monty Python's yeah. Flying Circus. And there's also a couple of more, I think three more seasons of the TV show after Holy Grail, because it kind of rejuvenates their 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 little group. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's right in the, in, in the middle of this seminal comedy career. I should say they also put out a number of comedy records including one that is still the weirdest thing i've ever heard about i've never actually heard it but it's a it's a it's an lp so you know a vinyl record that you put a needle on both Mm -hmm. sides are uh marked side a i believe but (laughs) one of them depending on where you put the needle to begin with has something completely different each time so there's two different grooves on one side of that record and they're they're different they're they're they give you totally different experiences Mm-hmm. So that that's still the trippiest thing I've ever heard anybody doing with a vinyl record. <laughs> but I, I haven't heard it myself. Did I leave anything out? You guys are probably bigger Monty Python fans than I am. Um, no. Go ahead, not David. In terms of, not in terms of history. Um, I, I, I grew up, I mean, I watched Holy Grail so, so, so many times. And it was, you know, long time before I saw any of the sketch comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I, I guess I was amazed, uh, in, in some cases, how much edgier what they aired on TV was than what was in the film. Kind of insane, right? For for 1969 on a on a government owned television station like the BBC. I think they were always at war with the BBC, though. Mm-hmm. And the BBC hated their name. They didn't like the name Monty Python, and so <laughs> the group the group started threatening to change their name every week. And uh-huh. so, so the BBC let them be Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> this is so fun. It really is. Wow. Well, David, I, I want to shift our focus to the Arthur legend. And you know extant Arthurian legends as well as anyone that I know. So take a few minutes to highlight a scene or two from Holy Grail that seems actually to borrow from medieval texts. And then point up one of your favorite scenes that doesn't retain much connection at all to actual English literary texts. Sure. Before I get into any particular scene, though, um, there is a way that all of the scenes are related. Um, the I, I, th- I think it's pretty fair to say that this movie is episodic. There's there's very little kind of through line character development or cause and effect in terms of plot. Um, our characters just kind of seem to wander into one thing after another. And that that episodic structure is actually very typical of chivalric romance of, you know, you've got your, you know, you've got your knight and then he just sort of wanders off and has adventures and then he has another adventure and then he has another adventure. And then your medieval author runs out of steam and leaves the romance unfinished and somebody 10 years later picks it up and keeps going. (laughs) So, yeah. So, so if, if you're, if you're baffled a bit by the, the episodic structure of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, just know. Um, I don't know if they did it on purpose because they are, you know, they are all about sketch comedy. Nonetheless, they have at least ended up with something that resembles structurally a chivalric romance more than a lot of movies that have aimed to be more authentically medieval. So here's your next mm-hmm. book, David: How the Chivalric Romance Invented Sketch Comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I think it'd probably be a little bit easier though to to trace um, the the miracle and mystery play cycles. 
um, which was all, you know, a single little play being performed on a cart. And then it would roll down the block and be performed again. And the crowd would just stay where it was while a series of carts moved past them, each doing a short little sketch. Interesting. So, yeah. So sketch comedy goes way back. Um, I'm not sure the mystery plays were all that funny for the most part. Unless it was the Kane story, because the Kane story was always goofy because he had like a hilarious sidekick and stuff. And Noah's wife was just a, you know, just a battle axe. She was always just badgering him. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they tried to put their comedy in where they could. I got to read mm-hmm. more medieval lit. <laughs> Michael, we've been telling you that for six years. <laughs> I'll read. I'll read more medieval lit when David Grubbs reads a novel that doesn't have kung fu in it. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll live and let live, sir. <laughs> um, the Castle Anthrax. I'm gonna get get into scenes now. Um, Castle Anthrax. Galahad wanders into this uh, tower that had a grail shaped beacon and meets a series of you know oddly named young women who seem extraordinarily enthused that he's there. Um, and, uh, he ends up being rescued from almost certain temptation. Uh, yeah, there are castles of maidens in, uh, sundry romances, uh, and in particular in the, the French, uh, French prose, uh, Lancelot Grail account, which is what Mallory's translating. Um, and I've got this little bit is from a stories of King Arthur uh, it's about a hundred years old. It's a it's a retelling of Mallory's uh, Mort d'Arthur for children. But this little passage, Galahad sees this castle, and he asks the castle's name uh, to some old guy. Uh, Fair sir, said he, it is the castle of maidens. That is a cursed castle, said Galahad, and all who have intercourse therein are cursed, for all pity is lacking there, and all cruelty and mischief therein. Therefore I counsel ye, Sir Knight, said the, said the other, that ye turn back. Sir, said Sir Galahad, ye may be sure I shall not turn back. So, <laughs> I don't think that quite meant a hundred years ago what it means now. But um, <laughs> it, it took very little for that authentically Arthurian set piece uh, to turn into a dirty joke. Mm-hmm. Um, the Black Knight who always triumphs, um, there are almost always knights camped out at fords and bridges. Um, if there's only one way to get from here to there, there's almost certainly going to be a knight there who will make you fight him. Um, so the Black Knight, you know, doing his none shall pass routine, that's, that's, uh, pretty much a staple of Arthurian lit. I mean, there's, you know, lots of other stuff too, but. We don't want that to be the whole show. So I will point out one thing that I don't think is authentic, and that's the depiction of peasants. Um, Medieval chivalric romance does not pay attention to peasants. It almost entirely ignores them. Um, they're, they're, They're just not in the stories. So, you know... You, you you couldn't say that you know the the peasants of Monty Python who mostly seem to wear burlap and roll around in the filth and do meaningless tasks like hitting water with a board and banging cats against the wall and moving mud from one <laughs> pile to another um you know yeah that uh, 
peasants aren't like that in medieval lit because peasants aren't in medieval lit. But right, peasants right. weren't that way anyway. Um, if you want an accurate view of peasant life in the Middle Ages, um, go read Pierce Plowman and you find out the, the degree to which, you know, peasants were actually really busy and really diligent and had, um, when things were well, had an organized life of definite seasons of labor and feasting. And uh, a few years ago, someone or other did a study. Maybe I can track down the link and we can stick it in the show notes. Um, but some, some, some group or other did a study that indicated that uh, the medieval peasant was better off by several measures than um, people alive today in, uh, you know, some of the poorest nations. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they had lots of money, but that they had the stuff that money can buy. And if you translated the provisions that they had into into wealth, that they would actually be wealthier than uh, the many of the current modern day nations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and they, they didn't just sort of sit on the floor and talk about anarcho-syndicalist syndicalist communes and, <laughs> and shift mud. Right, right. Well, now what about the monks, David? Did they really hit themselves in the face with boards? Uh, I don't know about hitting themselves in the face with boards. Um, sometimes self-flogging would be part of penance. Oh, and Pio Yeso Domine Dona Ace Requiem, that's the, that's the end of the Requiem Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, Pia Yeso Domine, um, merciful Lord Jesus, Dona Eis Requiem, give them peace. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yes, if you watch <laughs> Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you actually know a little bit of the Requiem Mass. Yes, yes. Let me ask you this, David. I mean, and, and this is one of those things where I'll admit my own background is spotty. Um, would there have been witch trials, I mean, any time before roughly the... I, I can never find one before the 15th century, honestly. Uh, that's a scene that I always think of as, you know, people think of that as sort of quintessentially medieval, but it really doesn't, you know, become a common occurrence at the very least until, I mean, late 1400s. Mm-hmm. Especially with the um, the elaborate trials by ordeal, which that whole scene is sending up. Does she weigh as much of a duck? Then she's made out of wood, which means she can burn, which means she's a witch. Right, um, right. Uh, I'd say your instinct is probably right, though. Pretty much all the nations that I know of had laws against witchcraft and against magic. Um, pretty famously, King Canute um, mm-hmm. in uh, the Danelaw had had witchcraft banned and various other kinds of pagan practices, but. Uh, I, I don't know that it necessarily sparked that kind of witch hunt craze. And what's right, especially right. funny is the way that the scene ends after she weighs as much as a duck and then mutters under her breath, it's a fair cop. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. So so she was a witch. <laughs> well, she did turn him into a newt. He got but better. He got better. <laughs> I wondered how much of this podcast would be taken up trading Monty Python lines, and I'm starting to get my answer. Uh, <laughs> I, I at least uh, oh. swear not to use a fake British accent. Yep. I can't any, help myself. <laughs> any, any, anything you guys would like to point to that, that, I, haven't, uh, that I haven't noted? 
Well, like I said, the witch trial is the one that always strikes me as, okay, okay. you know, that's really a Renaissance thing. That's not a medieval thing. Yeah, I think so. The, uh, the, the antipathy toward the French, that would have been typical? Um, well, not in the, well, okay, I, I gotta go back. <laughs> Remember the title card? The title card said 932 AD. <laughs> Wait, that's so, so wrong. Yeah. It's, it's so wrong. I mean, King Arthur would not have been romping around in 932 AD. He's, you know, he's like late 5th, early 6th century. If right, he would, and no if he one was telling stories about King Arthur until the 12th century. Exactly. <laughs> so so that, that, that's what's great is that from the very opening title card, they miss anything significant by at least 300 years. <laughs> yes. You know, not, yeah, so 932 <laughs> AD is actually, you know, probably as good as it gets in terms of being Anglo-Saxon England, though the Vikings are... Um, the Vikings are impinging in various ways. Um, the Normans are, you know, kind of settling, you know, in Normandy and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of what's going down in actual history in 932. Um, funny thing is, if you look up the year 932 on Wikipedia, uh, one of the things that it notes is that this is the year in which the story of Monty Python and the Holy Grail occurs. <laughs> So That's great. Yeah, so well, you, know, you, know, well, you can see who runs the internet. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there would have been antipathy for the French, you know, later on, especially Hundred Years War and all the rest of that. Um but yeah, they're they're That's they're the they're pre- century. <laughs> yeah, I know. But they they're they're just pretty much broadly sending up the Middle Ages in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's what you just need to see this as. They're they're just kind of sending up the kind of received education in the Middle Ages, both literary and historical, that British school children would get. Mm-hmm. Good they're show. Doing, good show. Yeah. The the director of this film, Terry Jones, is a uh, amateur historian of some note, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's done he's done a number of things, uh, especially with medieval lit. He he had a book out about um, uh, Chaucer's knight in the Canterbury Tales, arguing that he was a mercenary who'd basically roamed across Europe on the basis of where he'd fought battles. Um, uh, The professor that I had Chaucer under when I was getting my master's did not think much of that book, but (laughs) I don't think less of Terry Jones because Flowers Braswell did not like him. The guy's name is Flowers Braswell? Her name is Flowers Braswell. Excuse me. That that woman's yeah. name is Flower. That sounds like a Monty Python character, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> Flowers. Flowers is her, is her middle name. Her first name is Mary. And she <laughs> talked about Chaucer and his Canterbury Tales. She is wonderful. Anyway, yes. No, Flowers Braswell is awesome. That's pretty great. She, she is so aristocratic Alabama and talking about Chaucer. It's, it's one. And King Arthur. When, when your parents name you Flowers Braswell, yeah, there you your, go. Your career options are limited. Yeah, no, Ch- she, Chaucer she, scholar or like head of the debutante ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Michael, I want I want to keep things episodic and jump around a bit more. So, <laughs> this movie, I can't decide some days whether it is one of the smartest movies I can think of or one of the dumbest. So my suspicion is that both of those might be true. 
what's going on with this style of comedy that's particular to the Pythons, and what sorts of echoes can you discern in the 40 years of comedy that we've seen since Holy Grail? The best term for it is absurdist, I think. Maybe surrealist. It is It is comedy where there is often not a clear route from point A to point B, but that the, the joke occurs in the jump from one to the other, which is why you can't decide if it's the smartest thing you've ever seen or the stupidest, because they talk about smart things in profoundly stupid ways. <laughs> um, profoundly silly ways, maybe we should say. Yes. So you have my favorite scene in the movie, uh, Dennis, the proto-Marxist, who is uh, who, who's making what I think can only be called an eloquent case for the power of the proletariat. But because it's put into this very silly context, it becomes an agent of that same silliness. Mm-hmm. And and the movie's just full of stuff like that. It's it's full of smart people. Acting stupid, talking about smart things. And, and David went through a lot of, of how much this does actually align with uh, with with uh, medieval tropes and literature and all that stuff. Yeah. You have to have read Mallory to make a Castle of Maidens joke. Right. Right. But you don't have to... Uh... You don't have to have read Mallory to think it's funny, you know. It, it, it it's right, somehow right. it's somehow very accessible, but it only becomes more accessible the more you know about this stuff, or so I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Since I don't know very much about this stuff. <laughs> um, the other thing is, David mentioned this a little bit. The the episodic nature of this film, I, I didn't think of it in terms of medieval chivalric romances because I don't think I've ever read a medieval chivalric romance. I thought of it in terms of the sketch comedy tradition out of which they're coming. And and this this movie is very much a series of sketches. They just happen to be a series of thematically related sketches with some recurring characters. Uh, and, and not only that, it has something in common with the TV show from which it comes, which is that uh, they don't really know how to end some of these sketches, so they just uh, they, they just kind of go on to the next thing. And this is where you see a lot of Terry Gilliam's animation, uh, mm-hmm. because when the, when the pythons don't know what to do next, they often just have Gilliam animate something running across the screen. <laughs> the other source Absolutely of true. the other source of the comedy in this movie is the fact that they had no budget, and, and, and uh-huh. I, I think this movie is a great argument for artistic constraints because when you when you run up against a wall you have to do something interesting instead of just throwing money to do whatever you want so uh the the best example is they were supposed to be riding real horses in this movie but they couldn't afford real horses (laughs) so they came up with the coconut thing which is one of the funniest and you know longest lasting jokes in the whole movie the the they're coming behind the the, there's a guy walking behind arthur clapping coconuts together to sound like a horse that's really funny in a way i mean obviously having a real horse wouldn't have been funny at all so these constraints force them to be more interesting this is a you know if, if this movie were made today they would just throw money at a cgi artist and it would be terrible but because they didn't they had no budget they had to do more absurdist things than they otherwise would have uh, the other example is that this movie was supposed to end with uh, swallows dropping coconuts on the French during a climactic battle, but they didn't have money for that. <laughs> you can imagine how expensive that would have been. <laughs> so instead, so instead they have this, you know, really bizarre ending with the present-day cops breaking the fourth wall and arresting King Arthur for the murder of this historian. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think that contributes both to the intelligence of the movie and the silliness of the movie. As far as uh, as far as the heirs to this tradition, I, I don't think you can imagine sketch comedy after Monty Python without Monty Python. Um, mm-hmm. I, from, from the earliest days of Saturday Night Live to Kids in the Hall to the Upright Citizens Brigade, all of them are more or less doing what Monty Python are doing um, with twists, uh, you know, and, and some of them not quite as good, I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. SNL also doesn't know how to end sketches, but because it's live, they can't just have somebody animate across. So SNL sketches <laughs> usually go on two to three minutes too long, right? Um, I, I would say the clearest air is something like The Simpsons, uh, which, while not episodic in the way Monty Python is episodic, certainly embraces that absurdist humor. And uh, I, I think the the producers of that show call it uh, rubber band reality. Uh, you know, it's it's surreal. It's it's something that that is normal until it's not normal until the the Spanish mm-hmm. Inquisition shows up. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think basically all post Monty Python comedy and especially post Monty Python sketch comedy mm-hmm. is built on Monty Python. They're 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 the Beatles of of comedy. I'm not the first person to make that comparison, but it's an accurate one. It, just as you can't imagine post Beatles rock music without the Beatles, you can't imagine post Python comedy without Python. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you add, David? Um. Well, in terms in terms of airs, I would consider uh, Kids in the Hall to have been a pretty close air. Yeah. Uh, um, especially in terms of their their willingness to engage with really uncomfortably transgressive stuff as a source for comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robot Chicken. Yeah, all, all of that kind of quick cut surrealist absurdist comedy. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. have you ever seen Upright Citizens Brigade, David? I've not. Upright Citizens Brigade is probably best known now as Amy Poehler's first television show before she was on SNL and certainly before <laughs> Parks and Rec and all that stuff. It is wildly transgressive. And, and, and like they they did things where they would do hidden camera stuff in the in the real world playing these characters. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I mean you you want to you want to talk about oh, wow. you want to talk about drawing a line in the sand and then kicking it until it's not there anymore. Uh, <laughs> Upright Citizens Brigade is up there with the uh, with, with the with the best of them. Wow. Hmm. Wow. I, well, now for something completely different uh, <laughs> to bring the conversation back to the Arthur legend, David. I want you to zoom in a little bit and talk about the Grail legend. Now, I know that it involves Joseph of Arimathea, to be sure. (laughs) It involves Galahad, somewhat, to be sure. How much more do we actually see of actual medieval grail lore in this film, and what bits, again, are farthest from the sources? Oof. Um, Let's see. This is this is actually a challenge, because medieval grail lore, uh, Arthurian grail stuff is just a, it's just a hash (laughs) Uh, in 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 some ways i'll just you know draw one parallel um this movie just kind of stops it doesn't end there's no satisfying conclusion to the narrative it just kind of stops and that's exactly what your experience would have been as a reader of the first grail romance uh percival by cretien de foix um it just stops um, it's unfinished. He, he, you never actually even get to find out what the Grail is and whether or not Percival gets it. 
Um, this dissatisfied a lot of people, which is why we have such a proliferation of grail romances. Everybody wanted to finish the Percival. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't, well, you know, as Michael said, you know, there were budgetary issues, but, you know, <laughs> whether accidentally or on purpose, they ended up actually being <laughs> quite like the first grail romance in that, in that regard. Also like the first grail romance in that the grail is just kind of presented as this interesting object without any explanation whatsoever. And presumably Cartan would have gotten around to explaining it towards the end of the book he didn't finish mm-hmm. you know so you know it's that same same way in monty python and holy grail it's just kind of assumed that you know what the holy grail is why it's holy why anyone would want to go get it um you know i mean arthur god says go look for the holy grail and arthur's immediate reaction is good idea oh lord um which of course it's a good to- idea <laughs> <laughs> Which implies that that he has some notion of what a holy grail or the holy grail is, um, but they're not even going to touch that. <laughs> um, Joseph of Arimathea is in it uh, because, according to the legend, uh, you know late, later stuff that shows up in Mallory shows up French sources and then shows up in Mallory. Um, the grail is the cup of Christ that actually contains some of the blood that Christ shed on the cross, caught right. in the cup, uh, preserved by Joseph of Arimathea, and then taken to Britain. Um, in, so, you know, you'll, you'll actually find even into, you know, early Protestant, the, the early Protestant era, especially um, when Anglicans were trying to present themselves as um, an apostolic church that had no connections with Rome whatsoever, would try to trace... Um, its origins and the origins of its bishopric back to Joseph of Arimathea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of dubious? <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Yes, uh, yes. That the Arimathean got the cup from the Last Supper, took it to the cross, caught the blood, made it to Britain, and then... <laughs> <laughs> Appointed some bishops and died. <laughs> and, then Indi- right. and then Indiana Jones. <laughs> Say what? He went to the castle of... Ah! <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah, we have no we have no history for the Grail story. This movie depends on you knowing other Grail stories. Mm-hmm. Um other otherwise it wouldn't work. But like I mentioned, there are some elements from authentic uh Grail romance like the Castle of Maidens. Um there's a Castle of Maidens in the French Grail uh the French uh Vulgate Grail romance. Um in fact, it's a a big allegorical set piece in which the maidens in the castle represent the souls of the just kept in hell by the seven deadly sins until Christ comes to redeem them in Harrow Hell. So there are seven wicked knights whom Galahad must conquer in order to release the maidens of uh, the castle of maidens. I thought and it was Lancelot who came and pulled Galahad out of there. Well... See, here's the here's the funny thing, um, is that Gawain, not Lancelot, Gawain is the one in the French Grail romance who is constantly flying off the handle, pursuing adventure in his own idiom, and botching things <laughs> up. Because, see, after Galahad has rescued the maidens from the Castle of Maidens, conquered the seven deadly sins, but then, you know, sworn them to do some kind of labors of penance for King Arthur... Um, 
Gawain wanders up on the scene, sees those same guys, gets into a fight with them, and kills them. And then a, <laughs> a, a, a hermit shows up and says, Gawain, you, this was an allegory, and you just botched it. <laughs> It was supposed to show penance. And note, folks, this is not the Monty Python sketch. This is the medieval this, text. Yes, this is the medieval text. And so uh, I, I, did a, I did a paper on this once. But basically in, in the Grail romance, there's these two levels of narrative that are constantly interacting. There's the literal adventures of the knights, and there's the allegorical significance of their adventures. The difference is that the allegorical level is always dropping down to to speak to them through monks and hermits and abbots and whatnot. But also the knights themselves can in, can invade the allegorical level and botch it up, as does Sir Gawain. So this so what's going on in my Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where the knight the knight intrudes upon the narrator and kills mm-hmm. him and then the narr- and then the, the reality of the narrator then invades the story. Um there's stuff like that in in the French uh, uh, Gra- Vulgate Grail quest. Um, I don't think Monty Python did that on purpose, but it's but Monty Python and the Holy Grail is the best explanation that I have I have to give to why this is so weird. Mm-hmm. So anyway, <laughs> I think that stuff's neat. Right. Now, of course, I mean, one of the bizarre things culturally is that, you know, David, I don't know if this is the case for you. It certainly was the case for me. I saw Monty Python on the Holy Grail as a teenager and only years later read any of these medieval texts. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the, <laughs> you know, again, it's the uh, counter-invasion metaphor that you just laid out. You know, uh, actually, the medieval texts invaded the world of Monty Python in my story rather than vice versa. <laughs> well yeah and and but but you know we have that experience because we're not british school children um not true who, enough true enough you know who grew up on you know 1066 and all that mm-hmm. um you know so i don't know we're we're not the audience <laughs> <laughs> Well, Michael, I don't know how well it held up in your day, because as you remind our listeners at every turn, you're much younger than I am. I mean, <laughs> I'm, when only, I was I'm a... only 17. <laughs> when I... Oh, gosh. When I was an undergrad at a Christian college, Holy Grail was second only to Princess Bride in its ubiquity. People would recite scenes, insert lines into conversation, and in general, use this film as a source of threads with which to weave entire conversations. How did it fare in your college days and the conversations of your own students, and what do you think the appeal is for Christian college folk? I would say in my day, The Simpsons was more filled, filled that role more clearly than this movie did. Mm. I will say the first time I saw this movie was at an English department party at uh, Tacoma Falls College. So it clearly... Uh, still had some truck, and I was I was going to answer this question by saying, "Oh well, nobody ever really quoted it." But then I went to IMDb and looked at a list of the of quotations from this movie and realized, "Oh yeah, well people <laughs> were quoting it all the time." Um, because you forget, I mean, basically every sketch in this movie has has a line that somebody quotes to you uh, semi semi frequently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I have not heard my students quote this very much. My wife says that she has, but this, this does not seem to be a favorite among the current generation at Crown College anyway. Okay. I think it's kind of weird that it's that it's only it's second only to the Princess Bride at, at your school because like, this well, is, when I was an undergrad, not now so much. This is not a clean movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's not Life of Brian, and it's you know Life of Brian yes. semi heretical, full frontal Semi? Nudity. semi? Well, I mean, it's not no, Jesus. I mean, Brian yeah, you is... have to be claiming to teach in behalf of the church to be a heretic, don't you? <laughs> Oh, fair enough. Um, and and it's it's not uh, meaning of life with death by naked woman, but yeah, it, it, you know this is not a clean movie, and it, it, it it's kind of weird that it it wormed its way into your Christian college stable. At my at my school, the movie other than the Princess Bride everybody watched was Remember the Titans. Oh, <laughs> which, man. which I've never even seen. Nor have I. <laughs> I've but it must seen. be clean or else they wouldn't have showed it. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, David? Uh, we were all about the Monty Python. And and I was getting it before before I went to college. Because um, there were there were some definite um Holy Grail aficionados in our youth group. So, you know, there were scenes that I could have quoted you before I'd seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Because of the the role it had in our youth group lore, so to speak, um, and that was when I first saw it. Was when I was in high school, and you know that continued that continued in college to the degree that um, on one occasion, I think it was a Halloween, um, and this was when uh, I was in SGA. Um, we actually sponsored a Holy Grail movie night. <laughs> and I made a torso of the Black Knight and kind of set him on top of the big TV in the student lounge. And, you know, we all watched Holy Grail and quoted it. Um, it was awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was hugely important. Um, I think it was because it was transgressive that, you know, it, it was it was like, you know, we we'd all be like, <laughs> we get that joke, and we shouldn't be telling it, but <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> you know. But also, just the the uh, that there's so much there's there's stuff in this in this movie that's transgressive and it's dirty, but there's so much of it that's really really funny that isn't dirty. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's some. I mean, I, I was watching it the other uh, night before last with uh, with with Katie. And, you know, a lot of times what sticks with me is like, you know, this is a really edgy movie in a lot of ways. But a lot of what I was watching, I'm like, but this isn't edgy. This is just funny. It's just silly. You know, well, Camelot is a silly story. place. It is a silly place. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 I yeah, I, I, I love this movie. Right on, right on. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's funny. I have an experience, too. Uh, my freshman year, actually, our uh, professor who taught us, you know, Dante and Chaucer and so on and so forth, had the uh, whole class over to his house to watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So it's it's definitely one of those uh, student-professor connection moments. And, and now I'm feeling kind of bad. I might actually uh, 
have some sort of event where we watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail because my uh, medieval lit students always want to watch it as a class. And I say, well, no, I'm not going to use up class time doing that, but I might do it outside of class. Invite them, so. to, your, invite them to your home, Nathan. Yeah, I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll be great driving for an hour. <laughs> oh, come on. Those young people drive to Athens all the time to buy their comic books and yeah. <laughs> those other things that y- y- the youths do. Yes, yes. To play jacks. <laughs> <laughs> Drink milkshakes for two straws. You will not find a greater hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> for their, 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 their sock hops. <laughs> yes. Oh, heavens. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a staple of conversation back then. And mm-hmm. what I found fun, and, and David, uh, you know, you can corroborate this or not, but, I mean, anytime we teach any, anytime I teach, pardon me, any medieval text, uh, my students are always picking up on, hey, that's like in Monty Python. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it, it really is a fun thing where, you know, um, you know, our students kind of come to that first. And, and actually, that's not a bad segue into our next bit. You know, mm-hmm. David, you know, George Bernard Shaw, you know, he's the one that I remember. I'm sure other folks have noted this. Uh, he had a good bit of fun in the play Man and Superman, making fun of the fact that so many of his own countrymen got all of their knowledge about heaven and hell from Milton. Um, <laughs> what sense do you get that the folks around us get their sense of what's medieval from Monty Python? And if there are other sources that they draw their sense of the medieval, what are those sources? Mm. Well, we've already, uh, we've already brought up, you brought up witch hunts. Mm-hmm. And that that's a pervasive uh pervasive notion that that the medievals uh yeah that which which hunts were the were this thing that was constantly going on in the middle ages you know if you ever you know if you ever talk to a you know a particularly engaged wiccan they'll you know they 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 might tell you <laughs> in in so so somber tones about the burning times um which you know not not to say that 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 no woman and men Right, it wasn't just men or just mm. women, but you know, it, not not to say that that various people have not been treated horribly in the historic past by people professing the name of Christ because they were accusing them of witchcraft. That's happened. Not going to deny that. Um, it just wasn't all over the landscape in the Middle Ages, right? But you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail kind of. You know, it perpetuates that, and not just the idea of of which of the pervasiveness of which which trials, but also the the fundamental silliness of the people who would raise such accusations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's that's also what's going on there. I mean, the idea that someone might actually seriously think that the old lady down at the end of you know down at the end of the village who lives with all of those cats. You know, well, you know, when our cow died, one of her cats was on top of the barn looking at it. You know, and then my when my when my youngest got you know got took sick, one of her cats was in the yard. You know, I think she has something to do with it. If you if you genuinely live in that world, it makes a little bit more sense. But if it's just she turned me into a newt and I got better, um, it's manifestly absurd. Mm-hmm. Um. Their idea of how peasantry worked, uh, life as a peasant was not, you know, 
it was not Main Street USA, the medieval version. <laughs> um, but neither was it dress in burlap and roll around in the mud, bring out your dead, um, move one, you know, move mud from one pile to another pile. Um, there, you know, thing, things were, things were better than that. Um, not, not, not always, but at least better than the, than the, the, the kind of nihilistic utter futility that you see in, in Monty Python. I mean, the civilization that the Holy Grail depicts would not exist. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, medieval culture was built on the labor of industrious, productively industrious peasants. Mm-hmm. And what you see in Monty Python is that there's no productively in, productive industry going on anywhere. Right. Whatever it is that they're doing, it's not useful. Yes. Yeah. It's it's not useful. I mean, th- th- those would be be my two my two main things, and it also kind of reinforces the uh, the the ten- the the trait that you see in chivalric romance, which is that what's going on in the main in the Middle Ages is mainly about what the what the nobles are doing. Mm-hmm. It's mainly about what kings and knights are doing. Um, whatever it is that the peasants are doing, the commons are doing. Or any middle class, I guess Robert the Shrubber is probably or Roger, Roger, <laughs> Roger, Shrubber? Roger. Yeah, yeah, Roger the Shrubber. Uh, I guess he's he's our sole representative of the middle class. Um, whatever they're doing is not interesting. Mm-hmm. But but in fact, there's lots of interesting stuff happening that's not aristocratic in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything else you would want to add to that? Oh, other sources or some something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tolkien. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a lot of students who, who, who are pretty much convinced that, that the Middle Ages is basically Middle Earth without magic and hobbits. <laughs> you know, but similarly, that's a culture that couldn't function. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, how do people in Rohan live? They just ride around on horses all the time. <laughs> I mean, do they have farmers? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I guess you do have shots of, you know, long lines of, you know, people, now that I think of it, clad in burlap, being led to Helm's Deep. (laughs) Also, those books are super racist. Wait, what? The the Tolkien books are racist. Some races are depicted as just flat-out evil. Entire races of beings. Like like orcs? That's right. (laughs) That's right. Um, I, okay. I'm I'm the Dennis of this podcast. Clearly, I'm the one who cares <laughs> about the subaltern. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, you know, one more one more source. Uh, uh-huh. the, the Disney Robin Hood, and for that matter, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the various pop cultural representations of Robin Hood. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, could enough, David? Could enough. the could the Disney Robin Hood? Is that a society that could have functioned? <laughs> well. um... I don't know how uh, how anyone is going to eat in six months if you throw all of your peasantry into prison for not paying their taxes. Why did the sheriff of Nottingham not just eat the rabbits that he was throwing into prison? Because he was a wolf. 
Oh, man. I want to watch that movie. Yeah, you you want to see where Disney's Robin Hood invaded by the Lion King's circle of life? Oh God! Well, and then when the sheriff of Nottingham dies, his body becomes the grass, and the rabbits eat it, right? Yes, something like that. Well, then it then it becomes incredibly disturbing that uh, Maid Marian's uh, lady in waiting is a chicken. Yeah, fox fox in the hen house. Gotta watch out. I like that. the idea that Maid Marian has spent her entire life fighting back the most basic impulse she has. <laughs> like, right? Like, she must spend 18 hours a day thinking, I've got to eat Lady Cluck. I've got to eat Lady Cluck. She would taste so good. <laughs> wow. And, and Lady Cluck's so fat, too, so you know, you know it's a huge temptation. Yeah, she's a friar. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what about Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves, David? Is that an accurate presentation of the Middle Ages? Oh, gosh. Or Robin well, Hood, Men in Tights? Well, spoons do hurt more. <laughs> it's dull, you twit. <laughs> oh, Matt. I, but, but who can't love Alan Rickman in that movie, though? And, and who could love anything else about that movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is is that not the movie I I once described on this very podcast as a turd wrapped wrapped in a wet blanket? I don't know. I, and see, I might just be remembering this wrong, or I might be juxtaposing conversations. But I thought you defended it against me because I hate that movie so much. I don't. I don't remember. Yeah, I go I, back and forth on that movie because I loved it when I was a kid. But like, you watch it as an adult, and you can recognize how gloomy and stupid it is. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah. Oh well, at any rate, guys, I, well, <laughs> I I think it's time to head out the door. So let's do that with a few words about our favorite bits from the Holy Grail. Uh, which scenes have held up best now that none of us can pass, not even Michael, for undergraduate English majors anymore? Uh, Michael, you start and then hand it off to David. I already said my favorite bit is the one with Dennis, the, the medieval Marxist. <laughs> uh, I also love Brave Sir Robin and his minstrel. <laughs> his minstrel who always believes the best of him even when he performs abominably. <laughs> to fight and... Shut up, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is awesome. What about you, David? I, well, back in the day, I used to just in, endure through Terry Gilliam's animated sequences, but the, but they have grown on me over the years. Um, so I, I have more appreciation for them. They're not, they're not my favorite anymore. Probably if, if I have to pick a favorite and this is, this, this is basically a movie based out, made out of my favorite scenes. Um, if I had to pick a favorite, I love it. I love Lancelot's rescue of, you know, Terry Jones in the tower. Um, <laughs> you know, pale faced, you know, that's like uh, albino Terry Jones. I want to sing. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought your wife was a lady. Well, I can understand that. <laughs> well, but you've got, you've got, uh, you've got that whole series of, you know, the, the, 
I built the castle and it fell into a swamp, that whole bit. The mm-hmm. stay in the room and make sure he doesn't come out, that whole that whole bit. Um, mm-hmm. Lancelot continuing to, to, you know, just kind of fly off the handle and kill people. And let's not bicker about who killed who. <laughs> I, it's just brilliant. But what I was noticing night before last was Terry Jones' physical comedy. Um, j- when he wordlessly, he's just kind of standing in the room, and he kind of grins wanly at the guards, sidles over to the desk, <laughs> writes out the note, sidles over to the arrow, ties it on, gets down the bow, sidles over to the window, shoots it out, and then, you know... Uh, so 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 funny just perfect love that scene well i guess i'll wrap up with the bit that is so obvious that you know you two probably didn't want to go near it and that is uh john cleese as the french knight in the french castle Uh, (laughs) i mean it, it is it is so hard to do that kind of humor well and so many christian college students and i was among them uh, fail so spectacularly to try to reproduce it. But when John Cleese does it, it is so good. Um, and you know, now, now, now that I'm, uh, old and broken down, generally speaking, I'll, I'll do lines from those scenes just in a deadpan, uh, <laughs> you know, in as normal a voice as I can muster, you know, just to see if students will pick up on them. And usually that's enough to, uh, get a class back when they're a little bit edgy about the subject matter that I'm teaching that day. So, good stuff. Um, David, I believe you've got the wheel next week. What are we doing? Well, we're going to be looking at a little book that is conscious of its littleness. Um, uh, I believe it's pronounced Tilka. Uh, yep. Tilka's, Helmut. Uh, yeah, Helmut Tilka's Little Exercise for Young Theologians. Um, I'd had it recommended to me for years. I read it recently and uh, enjoyed it a great deal. So we're going to be talking through yeah. that. That that was actually a required reading when I was a first semester seminarian, so it'll be good to revisit it. Fun stuff. Awesome. Good. Well, folks, as you know, you can find us on the web at christianhumanist.org. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And, of course, you can give us recommendations and lots of stars at iTunes. That's how people find our show. Also by word of mouth, so feel free to talk about us. Uh, talk about which host is your favorite and which one's a moron and tell people, you got to listen to this guy. He's unbelievable. Most listeners will be referring to me at that point, but that's okay. Uh, Christian Humanist is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. And this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.